This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hello, everyone. This is Chiaki Santiago with Stories of Win, and today I have the honor to interview Dr. Tingting Wang, an assistant professor at Georgetown University with an appointment in the pharmacology and physiology department. Thank you for letting me interview you. Thank you. Of course, of course. So we like to usually start off our interviews by asking our scientists, what is your brain origin story? So how did you start loving the brain? What was exciting about the brain? And, and how did you start going towards neuroscience? Yeah, so I always want to be a scientist when I was a young kid. So in high school, I really I love mathematics, physics and chemistry. And then when I you know, when I got into uh, college, I have to decide my major. Mm -hmm. So I really want to do something that combine everything together. Mm -hmm. um, mathematics, physics, chemistry, everything, computer science, everything together. So that is biology, right? Mm. So we wanna, I want to use all these different approaches to understand how the cells work, mm. right? How different molecules work in the brain. So basically, our brain is, you know, like a supercomputer, right? It's, it does not use directly use, you know, computer chips, but all the information is, you know, processed and stored with all these chemicals, molecules. I think it's just fascinating to me. All these small molecules and proteins and cells, um, they compose the computer. The, our brain as a computer is composed of all these, you know, biological materials. So I want to understand, you know, how these different cell types, um, you know, in the nervous system really talk to each other, process the signal and, you know, process the information. And yeah, that's that's why I really, uh, come, how I come to neuroscience. Yeah, and then in college, um, at the beginning, I was really fascinated about signal transduction. Mm -hmm. And because I think there is a logic in that, right? Okay, mm -hmm. this molecule activate this and then this inhibit this. Um, so I really want to study cancer biology and I was really interested in pharmacology. Mm -hmm. And then um, a friend a friend of mine and I, you know, we went to a movie uh, during the summer. <laughs> <laughs> and then I watched this movie, The Matrix, and then it really this is amazing movie the, the, the first movie of the matrix and then i really you know that's the time when i really fall in love with neuroscience mm -hmm. i think this world how we interpret how all the information right in the world is uh, represented in the nervous system how do all these neuronal cells and non-neuronal cells process information transduce the information um, and then store the information so that's those are the questions i really want to answer so that's why i um, decided to go to graduate school to continue, you know, doing research in neuroscience and get yeah. a PhD in neuroscience. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Honestly, I relate to the idea of thinking about the brain from the matrix a lot because <laughs> after watching that movie, I just remember being like, you know, this is a conscious experience yeah. that our brain is, is coming up with. Yeah. And how do we understand the mechanisms beneath that yeah. and understand the computer itself? Yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah that's yeah. really cool. My, my husband is an uh, engineer. So he oh. studies uh, electrical, is electrical engineer. So basically he studies how cell phone, you know, process the signal, how yeah. the station send out the signal mm. um, with the most efficient way and how the cell phone receive the signal, process all these signal. So with the lowest energy requirement, right? So of course, I think yeah. I, we talk about the brain a lot. I think you can 
can actually compare the cell phone or a computer to a brain. I think they there are a lot of similar features. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Between a computer, a cell phone, and our nervous system. So um, there are, you know, on the circuit level, at the cellular level, and also at the synapse level, I think there are a lot of things that, you know, we can learn from uh, the engineering world. So really that movie, um, makes me feel like I want to study neuroscience. <laughs> Do you ever rewatch it to kind of inspire you again? Or? Maybe, maybe once. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, well, I am curious then. So you started loving the brain in college. You, you watched this movie. How did you go towards a path of research? How was it that you wanted to pursue academic research? Did yeah. you join a lab in undergrad? You know, what was that Yeah, I like? studied protein folding. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> As an <the> undergrad. <laughs> you know, run all the Western vlogs mm -hmm. and uh, purify proteins and look at protein folding. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, after I got into graduate school, because at that time, it's uh, early 20,000, I think, um, there are a lot of, you know, um, people newly developed all these molecular cellular tools um, to study uh, the synaptic function. So mm. you know the synapses, the neurons, how they communicate with, with each other, mainly through chemical synapses in the nervous system, right? Yeah. All these different neurotransmitter release from presynaptic pre terminals to activate the postsynaptic receptors. And so this is how um, the individual neurons make connections with each other. Mm -hmm. So, and because the neurons are really the very basic units in this computer, in our brain, in this yeah. supercomputer. So, I really want to understand on the chemical, on the synapse level, how neurons communicate with each other. Yeah. So, this is why I decided to go to Dr. Mike Ayler's lab yeah. at Duke. So he studies how these postsynaptic receptors, so basically these are the molecules receive information mm -hmm. from the presynaptic terminal. So he studies how the trafficking of these receptors are actually modulated, mm -hmm. you know, during long-term potentiation, which is a form of homo which is a form of plasticity that um, you know the nervous system used to for us to learn uh, new things, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to study how these receptors, especially AMPA receptor, which is the glutamate receptor, mm -hmm. um, ionotropic glutamate receptor, can actually traffic. How is the trafficking of the receptors regulated in the in the neuron, in the postsynaptic neuron? Um, so that's what I work on uh, during my PhD. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So, can we back up for a second and and like, how did you decide to? So I understand that you were interested in synaptic signaling, yeah, and wanting to go to graduate school yeah. for that. Yeah, how was the transition from undergrad to graduate school, and how did that? Look look like? Yeah. So, you know, as undergrad students, I think I was really busy, right? So we mm -hmm. have to take all the exams, GRE exams, TOEFL exam, because I went to a college in China. Mm -hmm. So I have to take all these exams at the same time. You need to, you know, prepare, you know, take classes and um, prepare, you know, the classes, exams, things like that. And then, um, so I... I just searched for the good neuroscience program <laughs> yeah. in the US and then pick a few ones that I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. I, I basically I look at the labs. Yeah. What do they study in yeah. the program, right? Is there any, you know, labs work on um are there any labs work on the topics that I'm interested in? So those yeah. are the questions that I ask. And then um 
I have a few, you know, schools on my list, and then I apply to those um, schools, and then yeah. Yeah. Was there was there a reason you wanted to come to the U.S. to study neurobiology, or did was it just like a yeah? Is there a specific reason, or did you? Yeah, want there to- are a lot of you know excellent top you know institutes um, oh, yeah. in the U.S. <laughs> and really, I think I, I think neuroscience. There are a lot of programs neuroscience awesome neuroscience programs in the in the US. So that's why I decided to come to the US to uh, get my PhD degree. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So you um, studied at Duke, you studied try like try to understand amperoceptors in uh, LTP and their yeah. mechanisms. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. Especially the newly synthesized receptors. Ooh, so okay. because there are receptors that are have already been synthesized and then be put on the cell surface for, mm-hmm. you know, uh, intercellular communication, right? Yeah. Synaptic transmission. But um, I was, as a graduate student, I was really interested in how these newly synthesized receptors can mm. be trafficked to the synapses for mm-hmm. a long-term potentiation for learning memory. Um, we know that, I don't know for undergrad students, maybe I should say a little bit more about this, yeah, the secretory pa- trafficking. So for the newly synthesized integral membrane proteins, for example, the receptors, they are integral membrane proteins. So they have to go through this secretory trafficking pathway, right? The yeah. ER to Golgi um, pathway. Um, however, you know, if you look at the neurons, their morphology is so different from other cell types. Mm-hmm. They have all these long processes, dendrites, axons. They have very complex morphological structure, right? Yeah. So the, the proteins are really synthesized, you know, in the cell body, and then they are, you know, the, the, the newly nascent proteins inserted to the ER, right? Which is the membrane structure inside the cell. Yes. So then the question is, I found these molecules can actually diffuse very rapidly in the ER, which mm. is inside a cell. And then the question is, okay, so if they can, you know, diffuse the newly synthesized receptors, if they can diffuse so rapidly in the ER, how do you determine which synapse this newly synthesized receptor goes to? Go to right? Yeah, yeah. So that is the question that I try to answer. And then we found that the ER, the endoplasmic reticulum, is not just a smooth structure. No. It's actually a very convoluted structure. Mm-hmm. And and then the ER membrane is more complex at dendritic branch points mm-hmm. and also close to synapses. Yeah. So they function as sort of like a trap for the newly synthesized receptors, mm. you know, to as a reservoir, right? Function as a reservoir for these receptors. They just stay there close to the synapses for export. Yeah. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. so interesting. So what did you what did you find? Was it that there were specific like let's say there was a dendritic signal that was coming in. Yeah. And um there is like a specific voltage change that happened. Is that going to make the amperoceptor trafficking more likely to that dendrite? Yeah, I think it's actually through the calcium. I think the mm. calcium might be really important. Uh, although I don't really, in that study, I don't really, I didn't provide any direct evidence, uh-huh. but my speculation is that the calcium, yeah. intracellular calcium is really important for to regulate the, the ER structure and mm. for the trafficking of the receptors. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. There's um, uh, a person in, in, in the lab that I'm currently in, in Dr. Bloodgood's lab at UCSD, and we, um, study mostly activity-dependent transcription, but yeah. one of the graduate students actually studied um, ER voltage and was ER able voltage. to mm-hmm, wow. and was able to find that ER voltage um, does not sync up with a plasma plasma, plasma membrane, membrane voltage. Uh-huh. But that was one of the hypotheses. Yeah. Like, is that yeah. does this have to do with like yeah. trafficking? And can this yeah, make yeah, yeah. how does ER voltage relate to plasma right, membrane? Right, 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 right. And although there wasn't like a significant correlation, I'd be curious to see if ER voltage is picking exactly. up like exactly. you know 
okay. dendritic signal yeah, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And does that make the AMP receptor yeah, more yeah. likely to traffic there? Yeah. That's a cool, that's really cool. Yeah. I, I think it kind of goes unnoticed. And like you just said, the ER is very convoluted. It, like, it is. It yeah. is. I think it's uh, people used to call it a cell inside a cell. So basically, yeah. the ER membrane is so it's just so complex, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's actively regulated by neural activity. Yeah. Um, so I think there are a lot of like very basic cellular biology questions that we need to answer in terms, mm -hmm. you know, to understand the function of neurons. Because neurons, uh, on one hand, they are these like very basic units for computing, but on the other hand, they're cells, right? Yeah. So we need to understand their, you know, cellular uh, function. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So you believe that calcium is is important for this process. Is it that the calcium stores in each individual dendrite is kind of uh, that, trafficking that's, AMPA? That's my speculation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. Um, yeah, I think the the. The idea and, and understanding of synapses is, is important for what we were talking about before. Yeah. It's like, if we're going to understand the supercomputer, yeah. what are the small functions that are happening yeah. cell by cell? Yeah. How can you create an, like a network? Exactly. And how does that relate to the supercomputer? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's really cool. So so from all of that research at Duke and and understanding synapse signaling and, and kind of doing graduate work there. How did you decide to, to move on to a postdoc? And yeah. what did you decide? Yeah, because as a graduate student, many working, I was mainly working on these cellular biology, cell biology questions, right? Mm -hmm. And then we already study one gene or two genes, right? How does this molecule or how do these two molecules regulate this process, right? And then I got really interested in genetics. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> right? <Good job. laughs> yeah. So if we think one more step right beyond cell cell biology molecular biology we want to understand what individual genes are doing right because all these molecules you know proteins they're encoded by genes in the genome right mm -hmm. and then everybody i think the human genome is you know compare me to you we have pretty similar genome oh, but yeah. you are you i'm king king <laughs> right so we're a different person so how does really the, the the genetic on the genetic level or the genome level like different uh, the function of different genes regulates the cellular different cellular process and mm -hmm. neural function and that's the question that i want to answer mm -hmm. so that's why um you know, for my postdoc uh, study, I actually went to a fly lab, mm. um, Drosophila melanogaster. We can use Drosophila to perform large-scale genetic screens to identify molecules or genes that are required for a certain biological process. Um, so I'm still interested in plasticity, of uh, synaptic plasticity, but. Uh, during my postdoc, um, I focus on another different form of uh, synaptic plasticity, which is called homeostatic plasticity. Mm. Instead of uh, you know um, actively regulating, strengthening, or weaken the synaptic strength, you know the synaptic transmission or the postsynaptic receptors, you actually also want to you know stabilize the neuronal function. You cannot really make you know one part of the brain too excitable mm -hmm. or the other part like hypo excitable yeah. right mm -hmm. so i want to study how the nervous system maintains its own 
um, you know, activity or st stability. So that's why I, I choose a uh, fly lab so I can do genetic screens. At the same time, I can study, you know, the homeostatic mechanisms that the mm -hmm. brain use to stabilize its own activity. Yeah. So how do you study a homeostatic uh, plasticity mechanisms in a fly? Yeah. So homeostasis, if you think about this, it's like you gave the system, uh, no matter what system it is, it mm -hmm. could be you know, blood glucose level or anything else, when it's homeostatically regulated during a perturbation, if you give a perturbation, the system is able to compensate for it and mm -hmm. then goes back to its set point, right? Mm -hmm. So in the nervous system, neurons, for individual neurons, they fire at certain frequency, right, with the stable firing rate. And then in the presence of perturbations, these perturbations could be many different types of insults, right? If you, you know, um, a pharmacological insults or a genetic mutation or you have a fever, you have COVID or anything, right? Yeah. So these are in the presence of all these perturbations, uh, we study how the nervous system compensate for it mm -hmm. and then how it stabilizes its, you know, activity. Mm -hmm. So in Drosophila, it's it's actually if you think about it, you can actually give a Drosophila some drug. Yeah. Right. To inhibit or activate the receptors, mm -hmm. right, which are the, the postsynaptic receptors that receive the, the signal from presynaptic neurons and then study, oh, what happened to the synaptic transmission mm -hmm. or uh, synaptic efficacy. Right. So in the presence of perturbation, the, the type of specific type of perturbation that we use is actually philanthotoxin is a wasp. Toxin. Mm. So, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, this is a, a, a glutamate receptor antagonist. Oh, okay. So, if you give flies this drug, um, you inhibit their uh, glut postsynaptic glutamate receptor function. Mm. So, they cannot really. Um, open and then you know the calcium and uh, sodium cannot get into the postsynaptic cell um so the 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 activity of the postsynaptic receptors is reduced yes this is you know on the individual receptor level however you know during action potential if you trigger action potential when the presynaptic neuron fire um there is actually uh, an increase of neurotransmitter released from yes. presynaptic terminal mm -hmm. so that actually compensates for the postsynaptic glutamate receptor you know activity mm -hmm. the reduction of the re activity. So the postsynaptic excitation um, in the neuron is actually maintained at a stable level. So this is what happens at the synapse. So basically, when you inhibit the postsynaptic receptor, let's say, oh, my cell phone cannot receive the signal very well. Yeah, <laughs> then yeah. you, you send a lot of signal from the, you know, the presynaptic terminal so that, oh, yeah, okay, my Wi-Fi is working already. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. So you were doing electrophysiological recordings was yeah. specifically in the fly brain or a region? So we actually, because we want to do genetics screen, right? Yeah. So we use the neuromuscular junction. Mm, so very okay. different than the mammalian neuromuscular junction, the fly neuromuscular junction is glutamatergic. So it's very similar to synapses in the central nervous system in mammals, and all the release machineries are conserved. So we yeah. can actually really dissect the, you know, the genetic components or the molecular components for homeostatic regulation in the neuromuscular junction. It's really easy to perform electrophysiology-based genetic screening. Yeah. In the central nervous system, it's so hard. It's very hard to perform large-scale screenings. Yeah, I see. Yeah. So how do you like isolate a neuromuscular junction in a fly? You, um, so we do this in 
third instar larva. Uh-huh. So you cut it open and then you clean up the interest, uh, the, uh, the the tissues inside the body, right? And yeah. then you can actually stimulate. It's really easy to see the neuromuscular junction, the muscles. Uh-huh. So you can just put your electrode into the muscle cells. They are relatively big. Wow. Yeah, they are much bigger. So you just put your electrode in the cell and then you stimulate stimulate presynaptic motor neuron axons and then so you can record evoked release or wow. evoked responses. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, 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 interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. And then you would just like um, you can screen like hundreds of mutants. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So in uh, a few months. Oh, I know. Yeah, fly yeah, research, you know. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that's yeah. super nice. And then another thing that I want to say about flies is that we have so many genetic tools available. There are mm. a lot of reagents out there that, that are commercially available. So you can just buy these mutants. You don't have to generate your own, mm. you know, mutants, right? So you can just buy from, um, you know, these publicly available resources and then uh, test these mutants in your lab. Yeah. So it's really convenient. Do you ever feel like with genetic screenings in flies that it's a little bit hard to, like are, when you do genetic screenings or you um, manipulate their genes in any way, Mm-hmm. Have there has there ever been like a way to does it decrease fertility in flies? Does it change some like, of them? Some mm. of the mutants um, do. It could be lethal, right? Yeah, so see, homozygous mutants could be lethal, but depends on the nature of the mutation. Sometimes yeah. you may just come up with a you know not so strong mutation. Mm. It's not gonna cause you know uh, lethality, but they can still survive to third instar, and so that you can do your experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 interesting, interesting. Yeah. So in your postdoc with these genetic screenings, what were you able to find about um, yeah so i was really interested in still i was really interested in how cells communicate with each other yes. right so if you think about the homeostatic plasticity i just talked about when you inhibit the postsynaptic receptor function there is increase of presynaptic release so there must be some retrograde signal right mm-hmm. sent from the postsynaptic cell to presynaptic cell so i was really interested in you know what is this retrograde signal like yeah. how the postsynaptic cell communicate with the presynaptic cell so then um i found that a extra cell extracellular ma- matrix molecule ecm molecule mm-hmm. is actually important for this process interesting um so then in the second uh study sec- my second project uh i actually found that this ECM molecule is not not directly secreted from the postsynaptic cell. It's actually secreted from glial cells. Oh, okay. So it's actually like a trapezoid synapse. Not only the presynaptic and the postsynaptic cell communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. The glial cells are also very important. Mm -hmm. They play very important roles in stabilizing synaptic transmission and um, plasticity. So um, now my lab, after I uh, set up my own lab, start my own lab, uh, we are very interested in how these glial cells regulate homeostatic plasticity. Mm. Yeah, Mm. especially in the context of uh, different uh, neurological disorders. Yeah, because we know that, um, for example, in Alzheimer's disease, uh, there is hyperactivity, right, in, yes. the, in the brain. And we're very interested in how uh, homeostatic plasticity is affected uh, in your degeneration, for example. And our really, my very naive and simple idea is that, <laughs> okay, so if homeostatic plasticity is so important to maintain the stability of the nervous system, yeah. can we enhance it, mm. right? Can we enhance the signaling pathways that are important for homeostatic plasticity and then stabilize 
the synaptic function in different diseases. Maybe mm. that can, you know, serve as a potential treatment for different uh, diseases. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like stimulating the system, similar yeah. to like how people want to, I mean, obviously this is like maybe generations in the future, but the idea of like, optogenetically like exactly. turning on specific turn it on turn it yeah. off right? <laughs> turn it off and how yeah, does that change yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 can we find you know pharmacological treatment you know mm -hmm. molecules to really enhance the function of certain genes or certain proteins that are important for homeostatic regulation in that way maybe we can you know stabilize the synapses and then mm -hmm. you know during degeneration and also we're interested in autism spectrum disorder because you know from human genetic studies there are a lot of genes uh, have been identified as autism some risk genes and many of these molecules are actually synaptic molecules right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and a lot of these are also epigenetic regulators mm. so now we're very interested in how these glial cells you know through epigenetic regulation uh, regulate or maintain the synaptic stability yeah wow that's yeah. that's really interesting and i think that the sometimes goes well i hope I don't want to say this like too lightly, but it, I feel like sometimes it goes unnoticed, the tripartite synapse and like understanding how glial cells uh, interact with neurons yeah. and, and yeah. uh, the pre and post synapse. Yeah. And yeah. there's so much more to so it. So much more to yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Which is, yeah. that's super exciting. So you decided to open up, you know, after this postdoc work and, and finding that it was something like a protein in the ECM that is communicating this right. postsynaptic right, right, signal. Right, right, right. You wanted to, to further this analysis and understand right, right, right. how glial cells glial cell, yeah, exactly. interact with the exactly. system yeah so now that you've opened up your lab is that the the, the specific question that you're asking in the yes, lab? yes yes nice, yes nice. yes yes are there other projects or questions that you're focusing on or do you feel like this is the main question that so, drives the lab so i didn't have a chance to tell you something really interesting oh yes glial, please right <laughs> so we're particularly interested in epigenetic regulation in glial cells so you know that um the uh, transcription is not only regulated or determined by the genes, right? The promoters, enhancers, there are also epigenetic regulation, could be, you know, DNA methylation, could be histone acetylation. Yes. What we found is that these glial cells actually can actively respond to the perturbation of the postsynaptic cell. Mm. So if you use a drug, yeah. you know, to inhibit or genetically delete the postsynaptic glutamate receptor subunit, there is upregulation of histone acetylation in these glial cells. I see. So now we're in the process to understand, because it's an epigenetic regulation, you already, it's like on a large scale, it controls a lot of the transcription of many different genes, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're using transcriptomic um, you know, methods and electrophysiological method to understand what are the genes actually are controlled in these glial or regulated in glial cells mm -hmm. through the epigenetic regulation to maintain the synapse uh, stability. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then you're trying to also understand this in the context of different diseases too. Right, exactly. And epigenetic. Exactly, okay. exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah, it's important because then, you know, certain behaviors or environments are, you know, how... Interact with each other, right? Exactly. Yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah. That's really interesting. So what are, you know... Um, what are some of your aspirations for the lab? Like what are like maybe goals that you have about the lab? And, and when you started it, what was, you know, of course you wanted to answer these questions, but yeah. you know, what, what were some extra like goals and things that you had in mind? For your I, lab? you know, I, I started this journey based on my own experience. I really want to understand how I, you know, how the information on my brain, really, <laughs> you know, process yeah. the information, right? So I, 
I'm always like I I, I really enjoying teaching student mentoring yeah. students in the lab and yeah. and talk to students because the young generation of students they have a lot of new ideas and yeah. things that I don't understand I don't know so it's <laughs> it's really a learning experience for me too mm -hmm. so for me not only to work in the lab is not only to understand how the brains work how the brain works and you know how the nervous system works how homeostatic plasticity works i also want to communicate talk to people right it's really it's it, i i love teaching yeah. I, I love mentoring students and that's why you know i i want to generate this cool environment really mm -hmm. friendly environment for everybody um to do research and then i can talk to them every yeah. day and um <laughs> yeah i think it's um not only for me right to do research in the lab i want everyone um to enjoy it and then we can talk about science that's the most fascinating part about doing science oh yeah. absolutely yeah, yeah there's like this um there's this like a, an immediate uh, connection that you make with a person when you get to talk yeah. about science yeah. and you get to talk about it deeply. Yeah. And then once you teach everybody, you know, the mechanisms and how it all works, yeah. once you get really nitty gritty into a problem, it becomes like way more fascinating. Yeah. And you have a higher yeah. investment. Yeah. 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 I'm sure yeah. a lot of listeners would appreciate hearing that too, because I know like with research, it's about finding mentors that care and that they yes, that want yes, to teach you yes. as well. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Such an important process yeah, yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah. So yes, yes, and I definitely support you know female students um, and also uh, minority people from uh, students from um, you know minority background. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I, I, I try to really set up a lab um, for everybody. Yeah. Not only you know for uh, students who have you know some family background. Okay, you have to be a scientist, but also for everyone, right? Yeah. If you're interested in doing this, yeah, come to the lab and then, you know, <laughs> yeah. I can teach you and then you you like it. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And and focusing on like fun questions. That, yeah, you know, yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. That's really cool. So you you started your lab um, and now you're at Georgetown. How is the transition from from being a postdoc to now running your lab? Like business wise or mechanicalistic like how did you how did it change from like scientists to like to pi uh, yeah to pi yeah i think the most challenging part is still mentoring students yeah. um it's i really enjoy it but i have to say that this is the most challenging part because of everyone course. is different of course everyone is different especially when you have you know people from very different backgrounds yes the method that you use to teach one student is not work on another student mm. so i really try to talk to each one of them and see what they need mm. and then so that that's really time consuming but i of really course. like it i think it's really rewarding so i talk to everyone in the lab and then see what they have learned in undergrad as undergrad student, as a master student, and then what you want to do, right? Mm -hmm. And then so we can discuss the project, so tailor the training plan for individual students. I think that's really important, but at the same time, it's very challenging. Yeah. yeah, yeah Would yeah. you say that that is the, the most challenging thing that you've found in your journey as a scientist? Um, I think now as a PI, training student is very challenging. Yeah. I think that's something that I... I need to work on. Mm -hmm. I think everybody, right? All yeah, the PS course, at yeah. different <laughs> stages. I think this is really important because I think doing science is not only me or my generation. It's mm. also next generation. Of course. We need to create this environment, you know, friendly environment, collaborative environment yeah. for everybody. And but everybody is different. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do you know that what this the student need, right? So you have to talk to the student. Yeah. You have to talk to the student not only on the project, but also see what they know, what they don't know. No, yeah, right so yeah. that's i think the most challenging part yeah yeah yeah, yeah. definitely definitely yeah, yeah it, it sounds challenging and, and it's a 
like a continuous conversation, right? Like you have to be able to talk with your mentor about, yeah. you know, the things that you're learning yeah. and, and like yeah. how to make process yeah. progress and, and stuff. Yeah. And it's also like I found in my graduate journey, like it's also a conversation about expectations and like, right. you know, how do we create a shared expectation? Right, right, of, right, 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 right. Like progress definitely, definitely. and yeah. uh, of learning. And like it's yeah. it's always been a an interesting process, but it's definitely like a, a learning curve. And, yes, yes, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's sounds- I definitely learn a lot. I really enjoy it. I think it's very the most rewarding process. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. So how many students do you currently have in your lab? I have two PhD students nice. uh, and uh one master student currently one master student and then um one research specialist one postdoc fellow and then one research assistant and then i have maybe five or six undergrad students wow that's a big lab yeah <laughs> that's amazing that's yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. and and like having undergraduates around too is always really nice yeah our honor undergrad students are amazing so um especially you know the first few undergrad students that I um, that work in my lab, they set up all the behavior. Oh wow. Um, experiments. I didn't know, right? So because I I work on electrophysiology mm-hmm. and uh, synapses and then I, I told them, okay, we want to look at what's going on in these animals in terms of their behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Can we do some motor behavior, I say, and circadian rhythm. Yeah. And you know, um, maybe we should look at seizures too. Yeah. Right? And then the students read papers and then they they organize all the protocols and then they try those protocols oh. and then they find the best way to do those behavior Yeah. So I I I I'm really Really grateful <laughs> to yeah. our undergrad students. Yeah. Yeah. So for us in my lab, undergrad students they need to present in lab meetings. Mm-hmm. So at least once per semester to present their data and also give a journal club presentation. Mm. So I think this is different than many other labs. I think I also you know want undergrad students to learn um, you know how to present and how to read papers. So they Definitely. present in our uh, lab meetings. And, yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. yeah, no, that's super important. And then yeah. develop skills to to present perfectly or yeah. you know not perfectly, yeah, but yeah. you know as, as close to it as possible. And and um, talk about science like that's yeah. a new skill that yeah. you have to learn yeah yeah definitely yeah. that's so cool nice yeah. nice yeah actually one of my undergrad students um she she just got into ucsd yay she, uh, she, now she is an md student medical student oh, here amazing. in the medical school yeah, yeah. that's awesome that's awesome yeah. hopefully you get to, to, <laughs> to, to visit her <laughs> that's really awesome yeah um so, okay, th- now we've talked about science, we've talked about your journey, like all the way from undergrad to, yeah. to becoming a PI. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm curious, like outside of being a scientist, what are the things that you enjoy doing? I like doing a lot of things. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like painting, mm. you know, just drawing with uh, color pencil or watercolor. I, I, like, I love colors. So yeah. that's what I do when mm. I was a student. Um, but now I don't have time. I, I don't really have that much time to, mm. um, to paint. To paint. <laughs> um, but I also like hiking, mm. you know, biking outside. Um, and then I like traveling. So my family, my so I have two kids, right? So when my son was very little, when he was maybe three or four, we travel actually to many different countries mm. um, in the in Europe, and then um, and then I think 2019 uh, we also went to the mountain Everest. Nice in Tibet. That's eye-opening experience. I highly recommend it. It's amazing, amazing experience. Wow. Yeah. So we, did you like so hike when, up when, to a base? Or? We went to the base camp. 
Yeah, yeah, on the on the China side, yeah, on, in Tibet. So it's amazing. It's just amazing. Wow, Tibet is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean yeah. the elevation change. Yes, and the yes, scenery. yeah, 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 yeah. Did was it okay, like altitude wise? Because or? we stayed in Lhasa, the the capital, um, for uh, a few days. So you know, mm, you gradually you adapt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um. I really love it. I I like traveling to different countries and then see different things. Really, yeah. it's it's very you know stimulating and you yeah. learn new things, right? Of course, you see new people and different cultures. I really love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is there a country that's on the bucket list that you haven't uh, gone to yet? I want to go to Egypt. Mm. <laughs> Ooh, okay, that's that, awesome. That was my it's my dream since I was a child. It's the oh. most mysterious country. <laughs> And gorgeous, you know, yes, and like yes. so many fun, yeah, 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 adventurous yeah, things to do. Yeah, yeah. That's really awesome. And I'm and like around the Georgetown area, I'm sure it's like wooded and really pretty. Yeah, and yeah. You do a lot of hikes there. Yes, yes. So also a lot of museums in the city. Mm-hmm. So um, if you have kids, have family, it's really nice place to to go in the city. You can go to different museums. And in Virginia, in Maryland, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. Yeah. There What's was, uh, like one of the museums that you and your kids really love going to? I think the the um, science history museum. Mm. That's the best museum. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And also, I like um, I visited uh, some family in, in D.C. and it was like the there's a science that one's really awesome. But there's also a newspaper museum. Yes, yes, I, would, yes, I yes, recommend, yes, yes, honestly. Yeah, 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 I think yeah, it's yeah. really cute. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and you can like open drawers and you can read yeah. like different newspapers from, yeah. from way back when. And, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, um, I really enjoyed having a conversation with you. Yeah. And thank you so much for letting us yeah, interview you. Yeah, thank you. you. Yeah.